Uh, we're all familiar with the little term ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And just very quickly, it's marked by listening problems, difficulty following instructions, distractibility, difficulty sitting still or remaining quiet. The mind and the body are sort of on the go all the time. And I wonder if any of these things describe your relationship with God. Perhaps you might have what could be called spiritual ADHD. And spiritual ADHD is characterized by hyperactivity in our lifestyles. We are putting too much into our lifestyles and we don't cope. And attention deficit in relation to our souls, in relation to our deep inner being, in relation to our relationship with God, with ourselves and with others. It's hyperactivity, it's attention deficit and it leads to disorder. We know the principles well. When things don't get maintained or nurtured, they fail to fulfil the purpose for which they were made. If plants don't get watered, they wither. If marriages aren't cared for, they break down. And when car radiators aren't filled with water, they crack. And when we fail to pay attention to our souls, the same thing happens to us. We wither, we break down, and we might even crack. Steve McAlpine is pastor of Providence Church in Midland, was pastor at Parkerville Baptist Church back around 2000. And I receive his blogs when he writes them. And this was a blog on the 4th of September, very apt for where I was going. And this is what the title of it was, Is Your Church Frantic or Focused? And these words can apply to us as a church or to us as individuals. And he says this, focused attention is our greatest resource. We live in a world that is the opposite, though, of focused attention. Our world is frantic distraction, racing here and there, constantly pulled by one image or another, a social media dip in there, a consumer purchase online there. The muscles of our attention spans have atrophied to the point that it is painful to do one thing or even less than one thing, nothing, for any length of time. It's easy to follow the culture into that frantic distraction, hyperactivity, attention deficit. Arch Hart, who was uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, a, a renowned seminary in the world for training pastors and so on and so on and so on, was trained psychiatrist, psychologist, pastor to the pastors. And he worked with pastors who burned out, stressed out, wore out, and a lot dropped out. This is what he said. We humans were designed for camel travel, but we're acting like supersonic jets. We're living at too fast a pace. He said that from the result of dealing with pastors. I don't think it's any different to the people I attend to. John Ortberg, former pastor at Willow Creek Church in America, Menlo Presbyterian, now wrote a great book called, he's written plenty of good books, but The Life You Always Wanted, and he said this, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. And this is what I love. For hurry prevents us from receiving love from the Father 
or giving it to his children. Put that in the context of last week where we said we need to claim our belovedness and live it out. Hurry prevents us from receiving love from the Father or giving it to his children. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. Let's have a quick look at Jesus. And I mean a quick look. I'm not giving any of the references. You'll need to get a good concordance if you want it. Jesus began his ministry, as we said last week, by spending 40 days alone in the desert. Alone, solitude. Desert, silence. Fasting. Before he chose the 12, he spent the entire night alone in the desert hills, praying. When he received the news of the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat to a solitary place. After the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples leave. He then dismissed the crowd and he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray all night. Following a long day and hard night of, uh, a long day and a night of work, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place. Getting the picture where he prayed. When the twelve had returned from a preaching and healing mission, Jesus instructed them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Following the healing of a leper, Luke made this observation, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Have we got the picture yet? <laughs> That's Jesus. With three disciples, he sought out the silence of a lonely mountain as the stage for his transfiguration. As he prayed for his highest and most holy work, the cross, Jesus sought the solitude and quiet of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' life was punctuated with solitude and silence. Withdrawing from the busyness of the demanding crowds, withdrawing from hyperactivity, to be alone with his Father, focused attention. And of course, Jesus travelled on foot at camel's pace and not at supersonic jet pace. I know that a lot of the pastors that Arch Hart dealt with flew from one appointment to another, often around the States, and fell apart, travelling at supersonic jet pace. What was Jesus' invitation? We read it a few weeks ago in Matthew eleven twenty eight. reading from the message. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Not supersonic jet with me. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. We've just heard, busy, withdraws, solitude, silence. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Silence and solitude are unforced rhythms. Help us live the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And throughout Christendom, silence and solitude have been two of the great spiritual disciplines. They dropped out for 1,800 years, but they're back. 
And they're back big time. They have been for many years. And that's why I'm talking about them this morning. Because we'll learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And we'll learn how to keep company with Jesus. And in fact become like him. Now I want to say a little bit about spiritual disciplines in general. First of all this morning. Because I think they're well and truly misunderstood. Several weeks ago, I talked about two spiritual disciplines with you, prayer and Bible meditation. And I focused on the listening aspect deliberately because that's the aspect we miss out on. And that's what's critical in the silence and solitude space. You know why I'm talking about solitude and silence with you today? Because of the feedback I had from those messages about listening. And I believe this is one of the ways to help us experience God more and to deal with this awful spiritual ADHD that is so prevalent in our society today. On the back of your fobs, you will see there a list of spiritual disciplines. I've taken those straight out of Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. If you actually want to really get serious and engage the disciplines that engage Richard Foster in that book written in the 80s, still the best one around. Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline. I love the title because he says, you get disciplined in your walk with God and guess what you're going to do? You're going to celebrate. We don't equate discipline with celebration very often. But Richard Foster does. That's on the back of your fob there. A whole lot of things there. You know, Bible reading, prayer, worship, serving, fellowship, Um, prayer, all these things, and a lot more in there as he sees it. Now here's the critical little piece we need to hear this morning. This is Paul talking to his younger brother in the faith, Timothy, who he's just set to pastor a church. So he's put Timothy in a church, and this is what he says to him in 1 Timothy 4, 7, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly, he says to this young pastor, and he would say to all of us here today. And from that word train, we get the word gymnasium. Now do we start getting the picture? A little bit of blood, sweat and tears. Train. So that you can be godly. We don't ever think of those two words together, do we? Training and godliness. But there they are. The master to the apprentice. This is what it says in the message, Eugene Peterson's message. Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit for today and forever. You can count on this. Take it to heart. Training in the gym, you can count on it, will make you godly. Disciplines are, this is is my simplest definition and I think I put it on the front of fob. I don't remember what I put there this week because I hadn't prepared the message at that stage. Disciplines are things that we do to dispose ourselves to God. Disciplines are things that you and I do to open ourselves up to God. Full stop. We're not looking at the result. We are just saying, I'm here for you, God. That's where it gets misunderstood. We open up ourselves to keep company with God. So we come to worship this morning to open ourselves to God. Full stop. 
Do we hear it? It's a big, full stop. We practice disciplines to give God to make to make room for God to move in our lives, to help us become more like Jesus, to enable us to live for the sake of others. But it's about disposing ourselves to God. Dallas Willard, who's written brilliantly on the spiritual disciplines, a lot harder read than. Um, Richard Foster said this, grace is not opposed to effort. Now we love talking about grace, it's God's free gift, la-di-da, God just gives it to us. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Get in the gym, in other words, he's saying, get in the spiritual gym and do some work. But then he says this, this is a critical, but it is opposed to earning. Ever said, I better pray more because I want this from God? I'm not praying hard enough, so I better pray more. I better read my Bible more often so I get this in my life. Missed the point of the disciplines. Sorry, missed it completely. Disciplines, all of those things that I put on the back of the fob are to dispose us towards God's grace. And what God does is his business. It's not yours and it's not mine. But I want to say, he does a hell of a lot. As Paul says to Timothy, if you get in the gym and train, he makes you fit for today and forever. Take it to heart. See, we get this wrong. We fall into this trap and we fall into it particularly with silence and solitude. Here, God, I've put in this effort. I'm really working hard at this, but you didn't speak to me. I didn't get anything out of it. Ever left a worship service going, I didn't get anything out of it? Ask a serious question. Ask yourself a serious question if that's what you go away with. Because you came here to open yourself up to God. Didn't you? They're called disciplines for a good reason because you might go through a dry spell but you stay disciplined, hanging in there with God. I'm not very good at this kind of thing so I'll just give it up. What's the point of effort if there's nothing ever happens? I didn't have any profound thoughts or spiritual breakthroughs. This is useless. This kind of judging of what did or did not happen can soon cause us to manipulate God and so we go harder at it. And then when we've gone harder at it and we don't believe we've had any breakthrough, we give it all up. I think I've said this here before in pastoral ministry. The number of people I go to in stress and say, how's your prayer life helping you here? And they go, I've given up because God doesn't turn up. <laughs> yeah, God turns up, but I've given up, so I've stopped. Have the scriptures informed you in any way of what's going on in your life at the moment? I don't read the scriptures anymore. Why? Because they've gone at it really, really hard with the very specific task of God speaking to them directly right then and giving them something they want and he hasn't turned up to do what they want so they've gone <laughs> to you, God. I do spiritual direction. It's the common thing that comes up. People coming in say, I've been praying and fasting because I want to break through in my finances. Why are they praying and fasting? Because they want to break through in their finances. Why should they be praying and fasting? 
because they want to be open to God. And if he chooses not to turn their finances around, so be it. He's still God. Might be tough to hear this morning, but this is the one thing we get wrong when we put a little effort in. John Ortberg said this, it can just feel like a waste of time. Let me tell you, silence and solitude can feel like that. What does 2 Corinthians say? We need to hear this carefully. And we who with unveiled faces all gaze upon the Lord's glory. Now we get an unveiled face because we've come faith. We've come to Christ in faith. He's made us his children. As we gaze upon the Lord's glory, so we do disciplines and we open ourselves up to God, this is what is happening. This is the promise. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. See, the change in your glory doesn't come from you. It comes from God, who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. What happens when we dispose ourselves to God? We are being changed. Do you believe that? When you dispose yourself to God in any of the disciplines... You are being transformed. You mightn't get your finances turned around like you want. But I'll tell you what, God's doing something. You mightn't see it then. See, we've got to trust this. We've got to trust that God is true to his word when we dispose ourselves to him. This is what is happening in our deep inner being as we open ourselves up to God. My question is, do you believe it? Do you trust God enough that he's doing it? He has an eternity to perfect us. We don't take long to mess our lives up, but he's got an eternity to change us. I know when we see him face to face, what needs doing will be done just like that, but we're into hurry. We're into instant. Let me put it this way. We're into microwaving. God's into marinating. The cook's around here, got that one. We're into microwaving. God's into marinating. So when for this month you've just disposed yourself to God and it all seems quiet, what's he doing? He's marinating you. Just can't go and go, God. You see, we come at God from who we are. Not at who he is. The one who calls us his child of God. That's why we need these disciplines. So we can hear what he's saying to us and knowing it. Learning to think and act like Jesus is at least as demanding as learning to run a marathon or play the piano. How many of you sit there watching the Olympics or some world sport and go, look at those fine tunes? And you admire the effort put in because you know every morning the marathoner gets up and runs another 10 kilometres and gets in the gym. You admire it and admire it and admire Well, that's what he does for a little piece of gold round his neck. Actually, it's not gold. It's just got a gold crust on it. The pianist...
concert pianists. We see them go magnificently with an orchestra, but we don't see them every day going... I, having done a little bit of music, I, ugh, I know that stuff. All those scales and stuff to keep your fingers moving and keep you tuned to the piano and all the rest of it. And we'll admire that. We say, great, to that concert pianist. Look what they've done to be where they are. We admire that kind of training. But when it comes to that kind of strict and wise training in the faith, we call it legalism. Paul says it, training to be godly. We're our own worst enemies. That is so sad to me. Or we say it's for the super spiritual or the saints. Well, let me tell you, we're all saints. So that's for us. It saddens me so much that when we meet somebody who's very disciplined in their life as a Christian and we call it legalism, all they're doing is putting in some effort for grace to flow if we get it right. Henry Nguyen, my favorite, one of my favorite authors, I've told you this before, in a book called Making All Things New, said this, Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to have a spiritual life. Bunk. Isn't that the way Jesus lived? Solitude. How many times did we read it there this morning? Solitude, he says, begins with a time and place for God and Him alone. It's a time and space to give Him our undivided attention. Now, did you notice that definition? It's really clear. We give him space. We give him our undivided attention. doesn't talk about results. You see, because it's not so much about us. Yes, we have to discipline ourselves, but it's about him. And I know that Henry Nguyen, where he lived at one stage, he worked with um, people with profound disability for years and years and years and years. This is where a lot of his writing came from. And he, there was a broom cupboard under the stairs where he worked. And for 40 minutes, and he went in there every day, shut the door behind him, 40 minutes into a solitary place to be alone with God. And I know he said, most of the time I come out of there and it kind of sucks because I don't hear anything. But he said, you've got to trust the voice that says you're the beloved. <laughs> Our instant society. We get there vulnerable and receptive before God when we do this. Jesus did it leaving behind the opinions of others, leaving behind the needs of others to enter into the presence of his loving Father, vulnerable, receptive. Solitude was the place where Jesus encountered his Father. I said, I think, at those times that Jesus listened. He didn't just pray and, and talk for the 14 hours overnight when he was alone in the silence. And the solitude, he didn't talk for 14 hours, he sat. And I'll bet he heard again the voice, you are my beloved and I take great delight in you. That's my reading into it because that's the voice that I know and hear. Takes time, says John Ortberg, to hear that. And it was from that great encounter that 
all the other encounters of Jesus' life happened. Why did we read those things out before he chose disciples? Alone in prayer. After a ministry time, went off alone in prayer. Jesus did it because it was important and he needed it. Solitude is the best way to free us from the slavery of our occupations and preoccupations and to help us to begin to hear the voice that makes all things new. Jesus went to desert, deserted places all alone. A few years ago, it's going to be a few years ago now, Sharon and I went to a place called Princess Margaret Rose Caves just out of Mount Gambier, over the border into Victoria. Yeah, we went over into that strange state from South Australia. Went there to have a picnic lunch together and the Princess Margaret Rose Caves were on the Glenelg River. And this particular day was absolutely still. Beautiful morning like this. We were out there at about this time in the morning and we walked down to the boat ramp onto the beautiful Glenelg River. And as we stood there on the landing, we were confronted with silence that we hadn't actually encountered since sleeping out in the desert in Alice Springs. And we turned to each other and said, isn't silence golden? And we stood there for 15, 20 minutes without saying a thing, just stood there and drank it in. Many people's experience today is that silence is deafening because we can't do nothing anymore, says Steve McAlpine. As soon as you're alone, without people to talk to, books to read, TV to watch, music to listen to, iPhones to look at, in a chaos of thoughts open up and it feels like you've got a head full of monkeys chattering up there. It's so loud, it's so disturbing, it's so confusing that you go and get busy again. It's a discipline. This confrontation with our inner conflicts makes it more important that we make solitude and silence a spiritual discipline. Silence is the discipline by which the inner fire of God is tended and kept alive. Remember the story of Elijah? Great thunderstorm comes across. No God. All sorts of things happen that are noisy. No God. He's all quiet. What happens? He hears the still small voice of God. Do we just read over these stories and Psalm forty six ten, anyone tell me what it is? If I start it you'll know. Be still. The Psalms are full of that. See silence and solitude are not the new thing. Love quoting it, don't we? Probably quote it to others. Go and be still now. And what? No. Now that word no doesn't mean my brain cells just percepted. It means my heart knows that God is God. That's it in a nutshell. This is how it is in the message. Step out of the traffic, says Eugene Peterson, and take a long, loving look at me, your high God. Something I'd love to be able to offer you after this morning is what Sharon and I have offered to the last two churches we've been to take you away on a weekend silence and solitude retreat and let you experience it and try and help teach it to you and stand alongside you and hold your hands as you do this because we've been doing it now for over 15 years and we've just seen its effect 
on people. This was the verse that motivated. Step out of, step out of your hyperactivity and come away and take long loving looks. And we did the silence together over meals. It's amazing. What's the foc- I need to repeat this. What's the focus of stepping out of the traffic? What's the focus of silence and solitude? What are the focuses of any, any disciplines? It's being with God, taking long loving looks at him. Not seeking him for something, although we will do that in our intercessory prayer. Not asking for stuff, but we will do that in our intercessory prayer. But these times are about God. We need to plan it. A couple of you know this, but I've suggested to you, take five minutes, ten minutes a day, and just sit quietly on your own. No music, no books, no Bible. You throw the Bible away just for this little exercise. And sit quietly with God. If there's that much chatter in your head, you can't slow it down. Do you know what to do? Just start slowly. Can I use the word mantra here without being, you know, dissected? As a prayer phrase, take the phrase, be still and know that I am God. And just repeat that slowly to yourself while you're sitting there silently. And just do it. And just do it. By the time you've done it 50 days, it'll probably be a habit. Then you can branch out and do half days. My diaries for the last 20 years of pastoral ministry in every month had a half day and a full day of silence and solitude for me. Every month had a half day of silence, well not silence and solitude, but at least taking my pastoral staff away to rest and a full day every month. None of my staff ever fell apart. It's the last thing I could have happen to me and to them to fall apart in ministry. As we become practice, we'll be able to deal with the thousands of thoughts and feelings that emerge from our minds. My first experience of silence and solitude was actually a four-day silent retreat. Please don't attempt it. Please don't. Honestly, start, start small. But I was desperate. I was desperate. For two and a half days, all I could hear was chat. I, tell you, I nearly picked up my, nearly got in my car and drove away. With eight other Baptist pastors, not allowed to talk when we went into the showers, not allowed to talk over meal. It was silence for 24 hours, except for half an hour with a spiritual director each morning, who often just gave us a couple of scripture passages to reflect on for the next 24 hours. Beautiful retreat place out in the country. So that, that was the setting. And so I had two and a half days of absolute, I call it torture, because that's what it was. I discovered how hyperactive I was. <laughs> and I describe what happened like this. You know, I used to, as a little kid, go to the creek and catch tadpoles, so they'd be in muddy water. And, you know, you know, you pick up the jar, you've got a fairly big-sized jar, and when you look in there, you can't see the taddies because it's all just stirred up. Do you know what that first two and a half days did? The mud settled to the bottom. And my soul became quiet enough after two and a half days that I could focus on God. I can see that place. 
I learned so much. I can't talk any more about it. It's not the time this morning. But my soul began to be restored to wholeness as I stepped out of the traffic and took long, loving, hard looks at God. I believe that if we will practice these disciplines, they'll break the power of our hyperactivity, of our isolation and our loneliness. Our, Our society is marked by loneliness. And one of the reasons is because we don't sit in the middle of that beautiful image where God says, you are my beloved child. How can you be lonely when that's ringing in your heart? For the development of our spiritual lives, a full diary often leads to an empty heart. little girl once came from a vacation Bible school program and proudly announced, I've asked Jesus into my heart. Her mother said, but honey, you asked Jesus into your heart two years ago. She shrugged her shoulders and sighed, I know, but he keeps escaping. This girl was partly right. The problem is that it's not so much that Jesus escapes, it's as that we force him out of our hectic schedules. Let us give time and solitude to what we c- so that we can hear his voice, so that we can enjoy his love and presence, and so that we can know him and follow him. just beautiful to be reminded of this trinity of love and that we're sitting in the center of that beloved trinity as the children of God. That's the core of Christianity. How did Jesus sum up Christianity? Love God, love others. Simple. That's it. I wish we could get back to it. You see, I know from my love for Sharon is that it doesn't just happen in a moment. It's a whole lifetime experience and it's going to keep growing tomorrow. Love by its very nature is not something that can be hurried. The Japanese theologian Kasuku Koyama explained this in a a little book called Three Mile an Hour God. So if I need to translate that, five kilometre an hour God. His simple and dangerous point is, was that God works and, and love grows at walking speed. He wrote, love has its speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It goes at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk and therefore it It is the speed the love of God walks. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have set right in front of us this morning and we've been able to celebrate the focus of your love for us it's a costly 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 love 
that was your son Jesus. We just thank you so much and we just praise you that because we've responded to Jesus by faith, we are now children of God. We are your beloved. Thank you that we've been able to celebrate that this morning. Help us to slow down so that we can claim that voice that calls us the beloved and live from that voice in the centre of our being. Amen.